0: Chapter fifteen of the Room in the Dragon Volant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Room in the Dragon Volant by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Chapter fifteen. The Strange Story of the Dragon Volant. These fetes were earlier in those days, and in France, than our modern balls are in London. I consulted my watch. It was a little past twelve. It was a still and sultry night. The magnificent suite of rooms, vast as some of them were, could not be kept at a temperature less than oppressive, especially to people with masks on. In some places the crowd was inconvenient, and the profusion of lights added to the heat. I removed my mask, therefore, as I saw some other people do, who were as careless of mystery as I. I had hardly done so, and began to breathe more comfortably, when I heard a friendly English voice call me by my name. It was Tom Whistlewick, of the blank dragoons. He had unmasked with a very flushed face, as I did. He was one of those Waterloo heroes, new from the mint of glory, whom as a body all the world except France revered. And the only thing I knew against him was a habit of allaying his thirst, which was excessive at balls, fêtes, musical parties, and all gatherings, where it was to be had, with champagne. And as he introduced me to his friend, Monsieur Camillac, I observed that he spoke a little thick. Monsieur Carmignac was little, lean, and straight as a ramrod. He was bald, took snuff, and wore spectacles, and, as I soon learned, held an official position. Tom was facetious, sly, and rather difficult to understand in his present pleasant mood. He was elevating his eyebrows and screwing his lips oddly, and fanning himself vaguely with his mask. After some agreeable conversation I was glad to observe that he preferred silence, and was satisfied with the role of listener, as I and Monsieur Camillac chatted, and he seated himself with extraordinary caution and indecision upon a bench beside us, and seemed very soon to find a difficulty in keeping his eyes open. "'I heard you mention,' said the French gentleman, "'that you had engaged an apartment in the Dragon Volant, about a half-league from this. When I was in a different police department about four years ago, Two very strange cases were connected with that house. One was of a wealthy émigré, permitted to return to France by the, um, um—by Napoleon. He vanished. The other, equally strange, was the case of a Russian of rank and wealth. He disappeared just as mysteriously. "'My servant,' I said, gave me a confused account of some occurrences, and as well as I recollect, he described the same persons—I mean, a returned French nobleman and a Russian gentleman.' But he made the whole story so marvellous—I mean in the supernatural sense—that I confess I did not believe a word of it." No, there was nothing supernatural, but a great deal inexplicable, said the French gentleman. Of course there may be theories, but the thing was never explained, nor so far as I know was a ray of light ever thrown upon it. "'Pray let me hear the story,' I said. I think I have a claim, as it affects my quarters. You don't suspect the people of the house?" Oh, it has changed hands since then, but there seems to be a fatality about a particular room. Could you describe the room? Certainly. It is a spacious panelled bedroom, up one pair of stairs in the back of the house, and at the extreme right as you look from its windows. (laughs) Ha! Really! Why then I have got the very room," I said, beginning to be more interested, perhaps the least bit in the world, disagreeably. Did the people die, or were they actually spirited away?" No, they did not die. They disappeared very oddly. I'll tell you the particulars. I happen to know them exactly, because I made an official visit on the first occasion to the house to collect evidence. And although I did not go down there upon the second, the papers came before me, and I dictated the official letter dispatched to the relations of the people who had disappeared. They had applied to the government to investigate the affair. We had letters from the same relations more than two years later, from which we learned that the missing men had never turned up." He took a pinch of snuff, and looked steadily at me. Never! I shall relate all that happened so far as we could discover. The French noble, who was the Chevalier Chateau Blasmar, unlike most emigres, had taken the matter in time, sold a large portion of his property before the Revolution had proceeded so far as to render that next to impossible, and retired with a large sum. He brought with him about half a million francs, the greater part of which he invested in the French funds. A much larger sum remained in Austrian land and securities. You will observe, then, that this gentleman was rich, and there was no allegation of his having lost money, or being in any way embarrassed. You see," I assented, this gentleman's habits were not expensive in proportion to his means. He had suitable lodgings in Paris, and for a time society and theatres and other reasonable amusements engrossed him. He did not play. He was a middle-aged man, affecting youth, with the vanities which are usual in such persons. But for the rest he was a gentle and polite person, who disturbed nobody. A person, you see, not likely to provoke an enmity." "'Certainly not,' I agreed. Early in the summer of 1811 he got an order permitting him to copy a picture in one of these salons, and came down here to Versailles for the purpose. His work was getting on slowly. After a time he left his hotel here and went by way of change to the dragon-volant. There he took by special choice the bedroom which has fallen to you by chance. From this time it appeared he painted little and seldom visited his apartments in Paris. One night he saw the host of the dragon-volant and told him that he was going to Paris to remain for a day or two on very particular business, that his servant would accompany him, but that he would retain his apartments at the dragon-volant and return in a few days. He left some clothes there, but packed a portmanteau, took his dressing-case and the rest, and, with his servant behind his carriage, drove into Paris. You observe all this, monsieur?" "'Most attentively,' I answered. "'Well, monsieur, as soon as they were approaching his lodgings, he stopped the carriage on a sudden, told his servant that he had changed his mind, that he would sleep elsewhere that night, that he had a very particular business in the north of France, not far from Rouen, that he would set out before daylight on his journey, and return in a fortnight. He called a fiacre, took in his hand a leather bag, which the servant said was just large enough to hold a few shirts and a coat, but that it was enormously heavy, as he could testify, for he held it in his hand while his master took out his purse to count thirty-six napoleons, for which the servant was to account when he should return. He then sent him on in the carriage, and he, with the bag I have mentioned, got into the fiacre. Up to that, you see, the narrative is quite clear." "'Perfectly,' I agreed." "'Now comes the mystery,' said Monsieur Camillac. "'After that, the Count Chateau-Blosmar was never more seen, so far as we can make out, by acquaintance or friend. We learned that the day before the Count's stockbroker had, by his direction, sold all his stock in the French funds, and handed him the cash it realized. The reason he gave him for this measure tallied with what he said to his servant—' he told him that he was going to the north of France to settle some claims, and did not know exactly how much might be required. The bag, which had puzzled the servant by its weight, contained, no doubt, a large sum in gold. Will monsieur try my snuff? He politely tendered his open snuff-box, of which I partook experimentally. A reward was offered, he continued, when the inquiry was instituted, for any information tending to throw a light upon the mystery— which might be afforded by the driver of the fiacre, employed on the night of so-and-so, at about the hour of half-past ten by a gentleman with a black leather bag in his hand, who descended from a private carriage and gave his servant some money, which he counted twice over. About a hundred and fifty drivers applied, but not one of them was the right man. We did, however, elicit a curious and unexpected piece of evidence in quite another quarter. What a racket that plaguy Harlequin makes with his sword!" Intolerable. I chimed in. The harlequin was soon gone, and he resumed. The evidence I speak of came from a boy about twelve years old, who knew the appearance of the count perfectly, having been often employed by him as a messenger. He stated that about half-past twelve o'clock on the same night, upon which you are to observe there was a brilliant moon, he was sent, his mother having been suddenly taken ill, for the sage farm, who lived within a stone's throw of the Dragon Volant. His friend's house, from which he started, was a mile away or more from that inn, in order to reach which he had to pass round the park of the Château de la Carque, at the site most remote from the point to which he was going. It passes the old churchyard of Saint-Aubin, which is separated from the road only by a very low fence, and two or three enormous old trees. The boy was a little nervous as he approached this ancient cemetery, and under the bright moonlight he saw a man whom he distinctly recognized as the Count, whom they designated by a soubriquet, which means the Man of Smiles. He was looking rueful enough now, and was seated on the side of a tombstone, on which he had laid a pistol, while he was ramming home the charge of another. The boy got cautiously by on tiptoe, with his eyes all the time on the Count Chateau Blasmar, or the man he mistook for him. His dress was not what he usually wore, but the witness swore he could not be mistaken as to his identity. He said his face looked grave and stern, but though he did not smile it was the same face he knew so well. Nothing would make him swerve from that if that he were it was the last time he was seen. He has never been heard of since. Nothing could be heard of him in the neighbourhood of Rouen. There has been no evidence of his death, and there is no sign that he is living." "'That certainly is a most singular case,' I replied, and was about to ask a question or two, when Tom Whistlewick, who without my observing it had been taking a ramble, returned a great deal more awake and a great deal less tipsy. "'I say, Carmiac, it is getting late, and I must go—I really must, for the reason I told you, and, Beckett, we may soon meet again." "'I regret very much, monsieur, my not being able at present to relate to you the other case, that of another tenant of the very same room, a case more mysterious and sinister than the last, and which occurred in the autumn of the same year. Will you both do a very good-natured thing, and come and dine with me at the Dragon Volant to-morrow?' So, as we pursued our way along the Galerie des Glaces, I extracted their promise. "'By Jove!' said Whistlewick, when this was done. "'Look at that pagoda, or sedan-chair, or whatever it is, just where those fellows set it down, and not one of them near it. I can't imagine how they tell fortune so devilish well. Jack Nuffles—I met him here to-night—says they're gypsies. Where are they, I wonder? I'll go over and have a peep at the prophet.' I saw him plucking at the blinds which were constructed something on the principle of Venetian blinds. The red curtains were inside, but they did not yield, and he could only peep under one that did not quite come down. When he rejoined us, he related, "'I could scarcely see the old fellow, it's so dark. He is covered with gold and red, and has an embroidered hat on like a mandarin's. He's fast asleep, and by Jove he smells like a pole-cat. It's worth going over only to have it to say. Pooh! Oh, it is a perfume! Faw!' Not caring to accept this tempting invitation, we got along slowly toward the door. I bade them good-night, reminding them of their promise, and so found my way at last to my carriage, and was soon rolling slowly toward the dragon volant, on the loneliest of roads, under old trees and the soft moonlight. What a number of things had happened within the last two hours!— What a variety of strange and vivid pictures were crowded together in that brief space! What an adventure was before me! The silent, moonlighted, solitary road—how it contrasted with the many eddied whirl of pleasure from whose roar and music, lights, diamonds, and colours I had just extricated myself! The sight of lonely nature at such an hour acts like a sudden sedative. The madness and guilt of my pursuit struck me with a momentary compunction and horror, I wished I had never entered the labyrinth which was leading me. I knew not whither. It was too late to think of that now. But the bitter was already stealing into my cup, and vague anticipations lay for a few minutes heavy on my heart. It would not have taken much to make me disclose my unmanly state of mind to my lively friend Alfred Ogle, nor even to the milder ridicule of the agreeable Tom Whistlewick. End of chapter 15